You may be seated. Please pray with me. God, would you, our loving friend, meet with us this morning as we gather around your word and as we worship. May the words that I speak be pleasing to you and be good for everyone here. And if they are not helpful and not good and not of you, please help us simply forget them. We love you, God, and we need you, and we pray these things in the name of our Creator, Redeemer, and the Spirit among us. Amen. How many of you here have seen the film Babette's Feast? Yes, so many. I see like two thumbs up and a wave, yes. I feel like some people really like this one. I love it. I first watched this movie at a retreat in the mountains near Leavenworth in college. This was a retreat where we lived for an entire month as a monk or a nun. Uh, having, we worked in the kitchen at all hours. We had prayers at all hours of the day and night. And all of that waking up for prayer had me realizing that being a nun was not something I was cut out for. I really love my sleep. But I digress. Babette's Feast, this movie, it is so beautiful. I don't think this is, I don't think I only think this because I saw it on a retreat in the mountains. I've seen it a few times since, and each time I cry. It's a movie about beauty and abundance on art and generosity. It's an old film and slow as I'll get out, but even me who struggles with patience, even I love it. The story goes like this. A French woman named Babette is a refugee in the Franco-Prussian War or the War of 1870, and she travels to a small village in Denmark and she takes refuge there. It is there in this tiny village that the two daughters of a minister take her in and help her to be safe. Now Babette, she was a refugee and unable to support herself in that time, she works for these two sisters, she serves them. And she serves them well, though she struggles with their language and they with hers. And she gets to know these two sisters and begins to understand that they are very religious. These sisters are pious. They never seem to make a mistake, but their piety, it's a little rigid. Yeah, those of you who know it, you, you, under, you agree. They have a strict way of life, and these sisters, they aren't very friendly. They eat what they need to survive, and they urge the other villagers into this rigid way of living as well. And because their now-deceased father, the minister, was well-loved, the whole village follows them and lives in this very strict way of being. And the French refugee Babette has a difficult time connecting with this way of life. But despite all of this, despite their cultural differences, they all get used to each other. And Babette stays in the house for 14 years. But one day, 14 years later, news comes that Babette has won the lottery in France. And as she goes to tell the sisters that she will go get this large sum of money, of course, the sisters assume she isn't coming back. If a refugee wins the lottery and could go back home because war was over, why wouldn't she? So the sisters, they bid her farewell. They send her on her way. They tell her goodbye. But a while later, Babette returns. 
And with her, to the, to the confusion of the village, she carries many boxes and odd packages of items. And to make things even more confusing, she tells the sisters to gather all of their friends, for Babette will be hosting a feast to celebrate the 100th birthday of these sisters' deceased father, the minister, beloved to these two sisters and to the entire village. And so, the sisters, they do what she says, these pious, strict sisters gather their friends hesitantly, for they don't know what to expect. And they gather at their home. And as Babette begins serving food, you can see that they think something unholy is about to take place. I would describe to you their faces as Babette pours them each a tall glass of wine, heaven forbid. And as she brings out the stuffed quail and other delicacies that these Danish villagers have never imagined, I would describe to you their shock and discomfort at such waste. But it is so delightful that you'll have to see it yourself. I'm going to host a showing later this year, so please come. And throughout, Babette is prepping here and cooking there and telling the children helping her to go pour everyone some more wine. Most of the movie is this dinner, and it is a wild scene and a sight to behold. I see some of you nodding. You remember this part. And I imagine this is a bit like what the scene was like in the village of Bethany, where Martha prepared a meal for Jesus and his disciples. The word Bethany originates in Hebrew and Aramaic and means house of affliction or house of figs. Jesus and his disciples have been traveling and teaching, and they stop in Bethany, hopefully for something more like figs and less like affliction. And I imagine Jesus and his disciples were exhausted from walking everywhere and meeting so many people, even the extroverts among them might be getting annoyed. And our scriptures tell us that many women have supported Jesus financially and through letting him stay with them as he had no home of his own, so it is no surprise that we find Jesus being hosted at the home of Mary and Martha, these two other sisters. And now, as Martha makes the meal, we read that Mary, Martha's sister, sat at the feet of Jesus to listen to him as he taught. And this doesn't seem like much of a big deal to us. Someone comes to visit, you sit with them, you listen to them, you hear how they are. But ancient culture would have seen Mary's actions quite a bit differently. Sitting at the feet of someone was a great honor, and an honor usually only reserved for men. A rabbi would welcome many men to sit with him and listen to him. Someone seated at a rabbi's feet meant that that person was giving the rabbi respect and indicating a desire to follow and learn. This spot was reserved for those committed to being the disciple of this rabbi, and here Mary was. She wasn't someone who had been following Jesus this whole time. She hadn't been traveling with Jesus and the other disciples, probably, listening to him, giving up house and home to follow him. And here she was, sitting in that coveted spot. And not only was this seat at the feet of Jesus for disciples only, but there is more we must understand about the culture of Mary, Martha, and of Jesus. Women weren't usually disciples of rabbis. Not only did Jewish girls not learn Torah as the Jewish boys did, making following a rabbi teaching Torah a difficult task, but women weren't usually disciples of rabbis because of what was considered proper. If a woman was traveling with a male rabbi, where would she sleep? And what would become of her reputation? 
And again, here Mary was, sitting at Jesus' feet as a disciple, scandalizing the entire community. And Martha isn't into her sister's scandalous actions either. Suddenly she has 12 hungry men at her house, and who knows who else, and her sister isn't even helping prepare food for them all. So whether out of care for her sister's reputation or because she's annoyed and tired, I imagine she tries to get Mary's attention. Maybe she waves her hands a little bit. She sends someone to go whisper in Mary's ear. She makes loud noises from where she's cooking, banging the first century equivalent of pots and pans, maybe jars and clay pots, but to no avail. Mary is still seated with Jesus, hanging on his every word. And so finally, Martha has had enough. I know I've been there. Have any of you ever felt like you were the only one working on a group project in school? The only one of your siblings growing up who ever cleaned the dishes? The only one who seems to care that everyone has enough food at the church potluck? If so, then you understand our friend Martha. She says to Jesus, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all this work by myself? Send her to help me. But Jesus says to her, Martha, you are anxious about many things, but few things are needed, or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. But, hold on. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Wasn't Martha making a legitimate request here? I get defensive of Martha here. Don't Don't we think people might be hungry? This group of people have been walking miles in the sun. Wouldn't they need something to eat? And was it too much to ask that her sister help her host? She lived there too, after all. And I appreciate Jesus welcoming Mary, a woman, to be his disciple in a time when that was unheard of. Really, I do. This is one of the passages that advocates for women in ministry. But couldn't have Jesus turned things even more on its head and told the wild disciple Peter to get his butt in the kitchen to help their host Martha with the food? Don't you think... I get defensive of Martha, and I have a lot of questions around her story here, because sadly, this story is often told blaming Martha. Reminding us to take time and rest to sit with Jesus is good, but I don't like that it blames Martha. All this focus isn't bad on all of this. We need this reminder. We need to rest. We need grace. We need to be welcomed at the feet of Jesus. Sometimes we need the contemplative life, that life of sitting with Jesus and listening to him. This, after all, is our work currently as a church, isn't it? We are sitting at Jesus' feet in this time of transition. We are listening. We are hearing from Jesus where he would call us to next, to go next as we search for new staff members and as we move forward in justice and love, despite what our denomination demands of its church these days. But while this reminder to sit at the feet of Jesus is a good and necessary one, commentators I read this week gave Martha some grace as well. They said that this story of Mary and Martha is only complete when it is read in the context that it is placed in with the text that comes before. Can anyone guess what comes before? It is the text that we learned about last week. George can guess. (laughs) It is the text we read last week, the story of the Good Samaritan. And if you weren't here last week, you should listen to Pastor Meg's sermon. It's a good one. 
You can find it online. She told us that the story of the Good Samaritan is a call to do, to do justice, to love mercy, to care for others, to put our very lives on the line for the well-being of others. This is our call as Christians, isn't it? So as we read about Mary and Martha this week, we must put it into context, as we should with all texts that we read. We must remember that sometimes God calls us to do, and sometimes God calls us to be, and both callings are good in their own times and in their own places. Mary lived out her calling, and Martha lived out hers in that moment. There is grace. If God called us all to be, nothing would ever get done, and we might go hungry. And if all we did was do and didn't spend any time being, we wouldn't be very peaceful. We wouldn't get any rest. We would be anxious and frantic. We wouldn't take any time with Jesus or any time to get to know one another. We wouldn't take any time to get to know ourselves. And Jesus here, he defends Mary, who is shamed by her sister, but he also gently speaks with Martha as well. Jesus doesn't seem to shame Martha for what she's doing, only tells her that her focus, that to focus on her guests, on Jesus, that that is the better thing. Perhaps Martha was distracted and frantic, but Jesus doesn't tell her to stop working, does he? Perhaps Jesus knows Martha's calling in that moment, and he knows Mary's, and perhaps he pushes her to see the ways that both her and her sister could love God through doing and through being. Perhaps first this text is a calling for us to be reminded that we all have different journeys with Jesus. Life is hard enough without getting shamed for how we serve Jesus. Some of us are therapists, we are professors and construction workers. Some of us are mothers and fathers and grandparents, sisters and brothers, uncles and aunts. We are CEOs and dog walkers. We are janitors, chefs, artists, social workers, mathematicians, doctors, business owners, and a whole host of other things that God created us to be for this season or longer. We cook and clean and host and build relationships. We are in seasons of doing and seasons of being, and we sit and pray, and we listen, and we go after all of these things. And it's easy to look at each other and say, but how are they serving Jesus? That looks nothing like the ways Jesus has called me to serve him. But then we have to remember that in the Gospels, in the very book we read from today, to some Jesus said to to go and sin no more. To some Jesus said to come and follow me. To some Jesus said stay and preach the good news in your village. And to some Jesus said to sell all your possessions and give it all to the poor. So how are we supposed to decide who is doing or being right for Jesus? Only Jesus gets to choose that. Our callings are different. So let us encourage one another to do and be in the ways that God asks each of us and celebrate our different ways of being disciples of Jesus in the moments we find ourselves in. After all, maybe this classic interpretation of the story of Mary and Martha, it's a good one, it's true. When partnered with the story of the Good Samaritan, when we look at these sisters, we remember that we can do justice and love mercy and walk humbly and do and serve And we can sit at the feet of Jesus and lay our hand on his knee and listen to his words. Sit and be, be at peace. We are called to both 
But the story of Mary and Martha has more to it, I think. There's one more piece. Biblical scholars write on this text that it is mainly about what true hospitality looks like. Back to Babette's feast. In the story of Babette's feast, Babette does more than just feed the people. She watches the ways that her employers are so pious. They are so holy that everything is done by the rules, though the rules keep them from one another. She watches them struggle to connect with others in the village. This French refugee sees the ways the village is stifled, unable to express themselves to each other, unable even to celebrate the milestones in their lives, like the hundredth birthday of their beloved deceased minister. And so Babette does something wild and reckless, something abundant and beautiful. She wins the lottery. She wins it big time. But what you don't find out until later in the movie, and this is a spoiler, but I promise the movie is still worth it if you know this detail. What you don't find out until later is that Babette has gone to get all of her lottery winnings in France, and she proceeds to spend all of it on this meal for her employers. Babette has wasted it all on getting this group to understand abundance, to understand goodness, and to get to know one another, to celebrate their dad and what would have been his 100th birthday. She wastes it to love them. That evening ends as Babette, the host, watches her guests stumble drunkenly into the night, singing and laughing with each other, aghast at the glorious and hilarious meal that they just had with one another. They were magnificently hosted. They left knowing who they were, and they left knowing more about each other. They left with joy. Babette knew what they needed, and she created space for that. She gave them space to be themselves. Babette knew true hospitality. And this is the true crux of the story of Mary and Martha as well. This is a story on what true hospitality looks like. As many of you know, Sandy Nelson and I, we did a cohort this year with Fuller Cascadia. We learned about art and faith, and one of our, one of our moments to study was a moment um, talking about what hospitality looks like. And we came up with a definition together. We learned that hospitality isn't making sure that everything is perfect in your home and that your dishes are perfectly clean and free of cracks. It isn't always having freshly baked cookies on hand or wine ready to pour, though it can certainly encompass those things. These things aren't bad, just as Martha's preparations weren't bad. But true hospitality, it's more than these things. I learned in this cohort this year that true hospitality is what makes space for the other. It is something that welcomes the other person in and makes them feel at home and able to be themselves with how God has created them to be. True hospitality allows the other person to be just as they are, no strings attached. It is, in a way, an art form of self. It is moving self to the needs of the other and celebrating that person's presence in your life. And in our cohort, we discussed that this making space, it is mutual. For good hospitality to happen, there's mutual sacrifice, one to the other. Mutual creating space for each other. This is the way that it works so that everyone can be well. And Jesus models this kind of hospitality through his time with the sisters Mary and Martha. When we read this story, we see Martha as the host, 
After all, she's the one who welcomes everyone in and makes everyone food. She is the one cooking for them. She is making sure their needs are met, and that is so beautiful. That is a beautiful form of hospitality. But Jesus shows that it can go deeper. He shows hospitality that can be practiced no matter what sorts of food or dishes or house one has. It is a hospitality that can be practiced wherever you are and whomever you are. It is a form of hospitality that can be shown whether you are the richest of people or the poorest. And Jesus does it right here. He creates space for the other. He comes into the house of Martha and Mary, receives, allowing the other to sacrifice for him, and he helps people be what they need to be in that moment. He goes to his friend Martha to see if she can make space for his disciples because they need food and they need rest. And he makes space for Mary, who wishes to study at his feet as a disciple. He makes space for her in his love as he defends her, as she is called out publicly for her scandalous behavior. Jesus always seems to be about a scandal. And Jesus makes space for even Martha, too. He sees her anxiety running back and forth, her franticness at trying to make sure everyone is taken care of. He sees her annoyance with her sister and feels along with her how frustrating it must be to host this group of people by herself. He sees her preparations and her care, and he creates space by inviting Martha to understand her hospitality as broader than what she thought. It was feeding people, to be sure, but perhaps it could be bigger than that. Perhaps Jesus invited her to see that her hospitality could be making food, but it could also be in caring for her guests by spending time with them, sitting with them, listening to them. Perhaps she could join her sister sometimes. Perhaps she could rest. Perhaps she could be hospitable through how her heart interacted with others. Perhaps she could create space for her guests to be simply who they each were. And I think it's easy for us to become frantic about our hospitality. When we're in the presence of others, we sometimes get anxious wanting people to have all that they need. And this is not a bad desire. It's good. It's a good thing to want to provide for those around us. But Jesus invites us to a broader understanding of hospitality, one that has more grace, one that we can do anytime and anywhere, one that we can do whoever we are. Jesus invites us not to hospitality that has us running around wondering if our silver is polished enough, if we even have silver. We are invited to be artists of hospitality, of listening to the other, and of listening to the Spirit about what God calls us to in each moment. We are invited to make space for one another so that people can be themselves, sacrificing for one another. Jesus' hospitality isn't about cookies or napkins, but creating space and creating home for people. Maybe this sort of hospitality means making space in your day and brain full of thoughts to have a moment to listen to someone else and hear what they are processing through. Maybe it means making space for one another's questions of faith and doubt, and maybe it's being hospitable towards yourself and making space for your own questions and your own doubts because most of us have those at some time or another. Maybe it means making space by having some gluten-free food at your event so that your gluten-free friend can come and rest without worrying about how they will feel later. 
Maybe it means understanding that someone else's way of worshiping God is different than your own. And making space for you means that you welcome different ways of worship or being with God into your church because you know that your neighbor needs to worship God in a way that feels like home for them too. If this sort of hospitality could spread, each person would be humbly submitting to each other, seeing one another's needs and creating space for one another to be what they're called to be in each moment. Don't you think it would be a little bit revolutionary? In our world, we don't usually see this. We aren't perfect. I fail at submitting to one another, to other people. I hurt people often. And it is important that as we make space, we also remember to make space for ourselves because not everyone will be hospitable for us, to us. In those moments when we receive hospitality, I love this image, we throw an elbow and we make sure that we stick out our elbows a bit and claim that seat at Jesus' feet and remember that Jesus has made space for us. But even though we aren't yet hospitality masters like Jesus, what could it mean for us to be hospitable in this space, making way this week in our places? Could we each start it? Just one step at a time. A hospitality space-making revolution. What if this group could do that? Perhaps we could lavish abundant hospitality one person at a time like Babette did with the feast she prepared for the Danish villagers. Perhaps taking a cue from Jesus who came into our space, but who taught us what hospitality looks like, who was present with us in our needs and who made space for us, making home for us in eternal life. So as we start this hospitality revolution, making space for others, May we first and foremost ground ourselves sitting at Jesus' feet, receiving that hospitality and love, finding our home with Jesus. This is imperative, and this is our first step. And may we also remember that as Jesus calls us, Jesus also calls others, and those calls may look different from our own, so may we encourage one another. And may we finally, with this grounding and reminder that the other's journeys are different than our own, may we finally go into the world making space for others to be exactly who God has called them to be. May we welcome others home in our spaces and in our places. Amen.